Hello and welcome to the Weekly Defence Podcast, the show about defence procurement and military technology. We are brought to you in partnership with our sponsor Honeywell. I'm your host, Richard Thomas, Senior Editor Naval, and on the show this week, we talk to the Royal Navy Commodore Robert Belfield about the mission of the International Maritime Security Construct, IMSC, in tackling specific maritime threats around the Arabian Peninsula. And we chat to L3 Harris Technologies about the first year of operations for the newly merged company and how it has overcome the impact of COVID-19 on its business. But first, let's take a look at some of the news from this week. Armoured vehicle programmes in Central and Eastern Europe are in jeopardy due to economic effects of COVID-19, new analysis from Shepherd Defence Insight indicates. Tightening economic constraints resulting from the pandemic could upset a recent trend of increased spending in new NATO states, compounding the already significant risk attached to high-value armoured programmes. Further east, amid Chinese violations in the Western sector of the line of actual control, the Indian Defence Minister discussed the delivery of additional Su-30 and MiG-29 fighters on a three-day visit to Moscow. Expediting delivery of the S-400 Triumph anti-missile system was also on Rajnath Singh's agenda. Australia is seeking to improve its training capabilities as the army prepares to upgrade its existing M1A1 Abrams main battle tanks. Under Project Land 907 Phase 2, the army is moving to the upgraded M1A2 variant, which will introduce new support and bespoke immersive training for the Australian tank crews. In the naval domain, the German MOD can finally move ahead with the procurement of four MKS-180 combat ships, with two more on option to replace the Brandenburg-class frigates in a contract that could be worth up to €6 billion. Attention will now turn to the detailed design and construction phase, with construction of the first-in-class expected to begin in 2023, ahead of a 2028 delivery date. Ship 2 will follow in late 2029, Ship 3 by mid-2030, and Ship 4 in the second half of 2031. Acting as prime for the programme is Netherlands shipbuilder Darman Shipyards, which will partner with Bloemen Voss and other German yards for the manufacturing process, while Thales Netherlands will provide radar and other sensors. The MKS-180 multi-role combat ships, frigates in all but name, will be the first in the German Navy to use a towed array sonar for ASW operations. To discuss this and more, I am joined by news editor Ben Vogel and land reporter Flavik Magosh-Pereira. Hello, both. Hi there. Hello. So, Ben, you have a story from Southeast Asia on a newly emerged controversy between China and Taiwan over Kangding-class frigates. Over to you. Thank you. Um, well, the export of uh, Dagai uh, Mark II countermeasures launchers from France for installation on Taiwanese Kangding frigates has, predictably enough, uh, generated fury in China as Beijing continues to exert pressure on Taipei. The Chinese government is becoming increasingly assertive and aggressive in in recent times in its foreign policy, uh, as we've we've all seen uh, with the recent border brawl between the Indian and Chinese troops. And in the case of these particular countermeasures, Beijing has warned Paris that continued support for Taiwan would cause Sino-French relations to deteriorate. Yeah, this is Tom Withington uh, writing the article, isn't it? So he said that the Kangding class were originally likely fitted with baseline Dagai. What details did he provide as to what the Mark II variant might do better? In terms of the kit itself, uh, the Dagai Mark II does enhance the self-protection of the Kangding class. Uh, For example, the soft kill capabilities include corner reflectors to defeat radar-guided anti-ship missiles, 
by fooling the weapon, essentially, into homing in on the reflector as a more tempting target. Although the manufacturer of the guy has not publicised this, it may be that the corner reflectors are effective against anti-ship missiles using radar seekers transmitting in the 8.5 to 40 gigahertz wave bands. Now, these wave bands include the frequencies that are routinely used by People's Liberation Army Navy anti-ship missiles. So, Concerns on the Chinese mainland over the planned Kang Ding class upgrade may go even beyond the usual aggressive stance towards Taiwan's relationships with foreign defence equipment providers. They also hint at wider worries about the potential blunting of Yeah, thanks, Ben. I mean, one wonders, as always, about the ramifications should such a deal be completed. You just look at the the the, the, the numbers between the two countries in, in terms of trade. China is France's second largest supplier with a 9% market share in the country compared to a 1.4% in the reverse order. The French government has stated the Chinese investment in France has grown significantly in recent years. They've got six, China has 6 billion euros in FDI stock in the country, and China also represents France's largest bilateral trade deficit, measuring at 29.2 billion euros in 2018. But then I suppose diplomacy isn't always about the numbers. Interesting, Ben. Thanks very much. Flavia, some news from your home country this week with the Brazilian MOD reassessing a cancelled decree, I believe. Tell us more. Yeah, to be honest, it's a confusing story. The Brazilian Minister of Defense is reassessing a cancelled presidential order that would have allowed the army to operate an air arm. Uh, this decree was signed by Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro on the 2nd of June, but it was withdrawn three days later. So the army could operate fixed wings for only three days. Uh, with this removal, the previous decree issued in 1986 was reacted. Uh, of an army aviation brand, but stated that the ground force could only operate helicopters. That's interesting. So uh, why was the decree cancelled? <laughs> yeah, the Minister of Defence confirmed that asked uh, for the removal to analyse its content. It was added that the wording used allowed uh, different and unwanted understandings of the rule. But this is not the only, the only one reason. Uh, former personnel uh, from the Brazilian Air Force, they criticized the new decree to, through the national media. They claimed that the Air Force's budget would be negatively impacted, including um, the, the Lieutenant Brigadier Rosato, uh, the former, former Air Force commander, he released a letter challenging the decree. And this is an unusual stance for ex-senior military officers in Brazil. Um, the Army intends to operate aircraft since the creation of, the, of its aviation. And the main benefit for the Army would be to provide logistic support to border forces that form the front line of protection in Brazilian North. 
these units, they are located inside the Amazon rainforest, surrounded by the jungle and far from cities. It's hard to, to understand, but the region has no roads on, and only boats, vessels and aircraft can supply these units. And it's a huge, a huge area. Just to have an idea, the area of the UK is 200,000 square kilometers. And the area only of the Amazon rainforest is five and a half million square kilometers. And the army, including, has conducted a study that concluded uh, the the best option to operate in this area would be the Sherpa C-23B. Uh, this airplane it was operated by the, the U.S. National Guard, uh, and it was retired in, nine, in 2014. And the Brazilian Army initially intended uh, to procure eight Sherpas, and the army included uh, has conducted a budget study and allocated around eight million dollars to acquire the first two airplanes. Yeah, it, it would be interesting to know what the Brazilian army thought about this. They had, you know, for for three days, an interesting new capability to potentially play with, and nearly performing a capability land grab from their air force counterparts. Close, maybe next time. Interesting, Clavia. Thank you very much. And again, to our listeners, you can read everything we've talked about here and a whole lot more at shepherdmedia.com forward slash news. Coming up next is my interview with Commodore Belfield, where we discuss current naval operations around the Arabian Peninsula and how the IMSC's mission differs from others in the region. This episode of the Weekly Defence Podcast is brought to you in partnership with Honeywell Aerospace. With an unmatched heritage of innovation that spans more than a century, Honeywell aims to solve military customers' greatest challenges and transform the way they fly. In a region awash with key maritime trade routes and choke points like the Bab el-Mandeb, Arabian Sea, Gulf of Oman, Strait of Hormuz to name a few, it's little wonder that the waters around the Arabian Peninsula are home to such a wide collection of international maritime security missions. However, there is one with perhaps a very different purpose than its compatriots, the recently created International Maritime Security Construct. Joining me on the weekly defence podcast from his Bahrain headquarters is Commodore Robert Belfield of the UK Royal Navy, who in May took up his position in command of the multinational force. Commodore, thanks very much for your time. Pleasure, pleasure. Commodore, what's the purpose of the IMSC and how does it differ from the many other security missions ongoing in the region? Well, IMSC, as you've already spelt out, um, is the International Maritime Security Construct. And that is a, a coalition of nations um, within which there is Operation Sentinel, which, are, which clearly is the operational element um, of, of the construct. Um, now, our mission is relatively simple. And I think first and foremost, um, just need to emphasize the fact this is an international coalition um, that seeks a solution to an international problem. Um, and we are a coalition of eight nations who joined together with the mutual interests of maintaining freedom of navigation and providing reassurance to the global merchant community and upholding the law or the rule of law at sea. Now, um, I think the key point you you asked me is you know how how do we differ from 
other international maritime security missions within the region. Um, and there is quite a simple difference, really, in that our mission is to focus on ensuring um, that we maintain freedom of navigation and trade um, through this region um, and to deter and prevent malign activity by a state actor. Um, now, the other um, very important um, co maritime coalition in, in this area, obviously, is, is the Combined Maritime Forces, or CMF. Um, and their remit is very much more on sort of non-state actors looking at counter-narcotics, counter-terrorism, um, counter-piracy um, in their work. Um, but we're much more focused on making sure that um, there's no malign activity by a state actor that could prevent the, the free movement of trade um, through this important maritime region. Sure. I mean, we'll obviously get on to the idea of what threats state actors might present. But just for our listeners, what, where, where does the IMSC get its assets from? You mentioned a number of countries that are participating in, in the mission. So where do the warships come from? Right. Well, I think um, as, as the coalition is, is largely founded by um, some of the, the major maritime actors uh, in the region, um, US, um, UK, um, Australia, three nations that have a long history of, of operating and maintaining maritime security uh, in the Gulf and wider region. Um, but also, importantly, we've, we've got support um, from regional partners, from Bahrain, um, Saudi Arabia, and UAE, um, who are key who are key in terms of their providing that regional understanding, um, and, and also the fact that they're using the, and providing assets to um, to maintain our presence in these waters. Obviously, 2019 and 2020 saw a number of attacks and, and, and boardings on commercial shipping in transit through the areas of water that I mentioned right at the outset by state or state-backed actors, as far as we can understand. What is the current threat level and how does the IMSC work to ensure that maritime security is upheld in this region? Yeah, you're absolutely right to go back to 2019 and um, the... Obviously, IMSC was formed um, based on the um, events surrounding the attempted seizure of British heritage, um, which was um, um, which was prevented by the the the, um, the intervention of one of the British units out here at the time. Uh, but then also the actual taking uh, hostage of the Senna Imperio. So, so based on that, um, you know, it was quite clear that what we can't have is 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 this sort of continued threat to. Um, um, to trade through here, and it was important that that uh, a maritime security framework was put in place to provide assurance to the the ship the shipping industry uh, that flows through here. So, um, so that that was the basis for it. Um, since then, um, what is absolutely key is is that that, that I task my units to to um, provide presence and overwatch, uh, particularly through the the um, the choke points in the region. Um, a lot of focus on Strait of Hormuz, um, quite clearly, and the and the, um, the entry and, and exit points of the Strait, uh, where we must be um, vigilant in deterring those potential threats. So we've got routine patrols, both by our Sentinels, which are our our, um, our larger frigates and destroyers um, from within the coalition, and also the Sentry units, which are the smaller patrol craft that operate in the Arabian Gulf. Um, and, but also, it's not just the, sh the ships on the on the high seas, but also the air assets. Um, so we can use our maritime patrol aircraft to provide that that uh, persistent overwatch, um, and to ensure that we're able to watch and then respond to any malign activity by 
and by a state actor. Give us an idea. What's the tempo of operations been like since you took uh, command? Well, I think the um, what's important is we're going to provide that assurance to the maritime community um, and to the shipping industry. And I have a very important role in liaising um, with industry because I see them as our customers. And um, but uh, we have to maintain, you know, constant presence. So you know, we've got. Um, um, I'm maintaining, you know, 100% coverage. In the in the in the key area of interest, which is the Strait of Hormuz. Now, of course, I haven't got um, enough forces to to um, to, to uh, have deployed throughout the region from the Babel Mendeb through the Arabian Sea um, and up to the Gulf of, of Oman. But um, you know, in the ideal world, I would do. But I think what is really important is that we we, com- we combine both our our shipping assets and our air assets to maintain a vigilant overwatch. And throughout that that period, and what is key for me is that I'm able to respond to any potential threat um, to a merchant vessel uh, in in the, in the choke points, um, and making sure that with our sort of high tempo of operations that we're able to expose any malign activity and spot it coming. So we've talked about the threats uh, to maritime security in the region. I mean, are there state actors um, other than Iran? let's say, that might threaten shipping in the region? Or is that is that the focus? Well, it's a very complicated operation environment, as, you, as I'm sure everyone understands. Um, you know, the, the, the key area here, and you know, we, we see it based on our experience of 2019, um, is where um, if Iran decides that she needs to, um, to further her own interests by interrupting uh, maritime trade, she can, she can do so. Um, and clearly, so that our main focus is is to ensure that um, that does not happen, and and um, and provide assurance that ships can freely come through these choke points without without being interrupted or or uh, in, in in those trade flows or taken. And and I think that that's where it's um it's really important that that my liaison with industry um, and that my my ability to put ships in the right place to be able to respond in times of tension is, is clear, but. You know that there are there are also complications in the Babel Mendham Straits as well in terms of the the conflict there between within within Yemen. So we we also watch that area very carefully. We maintain our aerial overwatch certainly in that in that region and occasionally put ships down there to again provide assurance to the vast numbers of of, of ships that that move through the Babel Mendham Straits as well. Yeah, can I ask just quickly what reaction uh, have you? received have your ships received have your personnel received from shipping operating in these choke points when they hear or see your assets there i, I assume it's a, a source of great reassurance for them well you expect me to say that wouldn't you but um but actually that that, that is true and i was talking to industry today actually um and what's really important is that um it's the simple things like just just regular vhf calls um out to all the ships in the vicinity um just to just to let them know that we are we're there we're there for a good reason we're there for their for their protection and and to and for, and to build up their confidence um, and uh, talking to our ships who are out there doing these maritime awareness calls and they frequently get a very positive response um, from the um, from the merchant ships that are coming through particularly those who are who are flagged to the participating nations um, and um, which, which 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 is good and we always you know stand by to. To engage through other organisations such as the UK MTO, who are the sort of key link, our key link into 
into the ships that are coming through um, to provide any support uh, as uh, as necessary. Often it's just a bit of a a call to say, uh, we are here, uh, we're here to respond if we're needed. I mean, you mentioned that uh, the difficulties that you you face, this immense bodies of water that you have to patrol and secure. So what, what efforts are there being made to integrate additional partner nations into the IMC construct? And what kind of capabilities, specific capabilities, might be sought? Is it more aircraft you need? Is it more patrol ships? Is it more frigates? Yeah, I mean, we've got a, a number of areas. So obviously, um, the, the important part of of having a wide international community um, that's involved in IMSC uh, is important. And um, and actually, Albania and Lithuania are about to uh, have joined IMSC and will be providing staff um, into the headquarters. Um, and that just shows how important it is that the whole international community, um, you know, contributes to, to this important coalition um, because we all rely upon uh, trade flowing freely in and out of these choke points. But actually... You would understand that um, what I'm really keen to have is, is, is partners who can provide um, regular force flow into our patrols, and I'm really glad to say this, it's not just the, you know, the, the the sort of key large uh, blue water um, maritime nations of of US, you know, UK, and and Australia, but also the very important role that's played by the by our regional partners. I've said before and. And what we've able, been able to develop uh, over time um, here with IMSC is that really important information sharing at a classified level uh, between um, our regional partners, um, which is key to have an integrated approach um, to the to the Sentinel patrols, both within the Gulf and, and within and within the Straits themselves. So, you know, I, when, I, when I've seen from here uh, six years since I was last operating out in this region is a much closer relationship between the nations and a, and a very important um, role that's played by my my local partner nations or my regional partner nations staff within the headquarters. I mean, it's, it's all about understanding the, the, uh, the, um, the environment that we're operating in. Just finally, Commodore, I mean, how long is the IMC's mandate due to run for? And do you think we might see an enduring presence for the mission in the region? Yeah, I mean, I'm... I think the uh, the coalition is in a good place at the moment, and partly partly sort of reflecting your last question as well. The what what I'm seeing here at the moment is is developing IMSC further, taking IMSC with its current construct and just really taking it to step forward and improving our own operational capability across across the partner nation. So I'm not I'm not really driving to increase membership any further. We'd be delighted for any nation who wants to come into IMSC can do so, uh, particularly if they can provide assets to us. But uh, I'm not I'm not going out searching for for lots of new countries to join us. Uh, but looking further further ahead, like like a lot of this, IMSC was set up for a reason. It has a it has a mandate of providing deterrence and providing assurance, um, which is quite an interesting, you know, um, sort of mandate within our mission. Um, um, but if the con- it is a conditions-based um, construct, uh, and if we get the situation where um, you know that that the shipping industry and um, has the confidence that global trade could continue to flow through this region unhindered um, from any form of intervention from a state actor, um, then you know, we're really good. We're, lo- we're looking to a 
place then where we, you can wonder, well, but do we still need to have you know constant controls out? So we're all, always monitoring the um, the operational situation very carefully and, and looking at the sort of causal factors of instability in the region. Um, and but if we if, if it is deemed that those have been resolved and we're into, into a position of where we've got confidence in the maritime security of the region, then then obviously we need, we would look as to whether IMSC is still, still required. Um, so in answer to your question, um, I don't see it going on in perpetuity. I see it being a condition-based uh, construct. And um, when all is well in the region, then then um, IMSC doesn't necessarily need to be um, out on patrol. Commodore Robert Belfield, thanks very much for coming on. Much appreciated. At Shepherd Media, we understand defence and aerospace audiences and how to reach them. We've been doing that for four decades, and now you can fill the gap left by cancelled trade shows with Shepard's new Defence Audiences marketing solution. Defence Audiences aims to mitigate the lack of events by bringing innovative marketing to the forefront of the industry, allowing you to take advantage of our digital leadership to achieve your marketing goals for the year. Our Defence Audiences offering provides predefined and bespoke packages of solutions for companies looking to tell their stories and influence key defense decision makers with product launches, thought leadership, lead generation, or product education. To position your brand centrally to the defense and aerospace markets, speak to Shepherd Media about how defense audiences will help you today. Hello, my name's Andrew White. I'm a regular contributor for Shepherd Media, and uh, today I'm joined by Dana Maynard, uh, President of Communication Systems at L3 Harris uh, Technologies. Um, Dana, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. If I, uh, if I could start by asking you, um, we're one year on from the, the merger between L3 and, and Harris. What's the current state of the company? Well, thank you, Andrew. It's great to be here with you today and look forward to seeing you again in person uh, at one of the shows, uh, hopefully sometime in the near future. So, um, you know, one year on, it's it's been a pretty remarkable first year as a combined company. We came together as L3 Harris as a team on the 1st of July last year. And I really couldn't be more proud of what our employees and the leadership team um, have accomplished over this uh, last year and in really unprecedented times for all of us. You know, it's really our employees who have made the merger successful, it came together in the face of adversity and are working every day to fulfill the mission of the new L3 Harris. I think most importantly, our customers have applauded the combination of the new companies and or greater ability to address their needs. I think they highly value the mission-critical capabilities we bring to them through each of our businesses, but especially appreciate what we can do with the greater scale of the new combined company, really offering them more choices as a major competitor in the aerospace and defense market. And so, you know, if I look at it one year on, we're making good on the value proposition of the merger, bringing together two strong complementary aerospace and defense companies to create an even stronger and more capable combined company. You know, we, when we came together as L3 and Harris, we created the sixth largest U.S. aerospace and defense prime, 10th largest in the world. We're now $18 billion in revenue, you know, nearly 50,000 employees. And I think by any measure, it's really been a successful year. So, so look on in a couple of different dimensions. You know, strategically, we set out to leverage the broader scale of the two companies and our complementary technology. 
I think we've done a very good job on that. We've already captured significant revenue synergies, submitting 41, you know, pr combined proposals, leveraging technologies from the different companies. It's $2 billion of potential business over the next several years. Operationally, you know, great progress. We're, you know, through one year of a three-year integration roadmap and we're delivering, you know, cost synergies ahead of schedule and at greater value. We also, I think most importantly, are building a strong operational excellence culture focused on continuous improvement. And I think that will help sustain our performance trajectory even beyond the integration period. And then financially, you know, we're, we're at or ahead of all of the objectives that we set out as part of the deal proposition for revenue, for margins, for free cash flow. And we've also made significant progress shaping the portfolio of the new businesses to be even stronger and more focused on our core technology-driven aerospace and defense markets. Overall, the teams come together very well, uh, amazingly well for two companies of the scale. Um, you know, if I look at the different businesses and mine in particular, where half L3 and half Harris and a year on, you wouldn't know who came from where. We, we've really blended together and focused on our mission of doing an even better job of supporting our global customer base on their very, very critical mission. So you're in, you know, despite all of the challenges of COVID, I think we're doing very well and uh, ahead of schedule. And I think have even exceeded the expectations that we all had for the merger. Excellent. Thank you, Dana. What would you say were the greatest uh, lessons learned regarding the merger and the transition into the uh, the joint business model? Uh, you know, I, I think the, the power of the combination, you know, it was a good premise set forward, a good value proposition that Chris and Bill came up with. But we're finding new things every day. Um, the complementary technologies, we competed in very few areas. You know, we divested a legacy Harris night vision business because L3 had a you know stronger business that we took into the portfolio. But by and large, tremendous compliments. If I look at what we're doing, bringing together different electronic warfare technologies, advanced resilient waveforms in my business, uh, the ability to create integrated soldier systems, leveraging the night vision technology and the communications technology, the biggest surprises have really all been positive in terms of, I would say, even stronger complementary capabilities and technologies, and then just everybody's ability to work together. Any, any challenges you can mention? Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there are always challenges. The, the, the biggest one, I think, for all of us has been COVID and how we respond to you know, a large portion of our workforce working remotely, our, our customers having to deal with travel restrictions, site access restrictions, you know, really a new way of doing business for, for everybody across the world and managing a global supply chain in that environment. I'm amazed at how well the team has adapted. If, if you would have asked me you know, a year ago, could we have half the workforce working from home and not be slipping schedules, being able to continue to develop technology, supporting our customers, um, I would have thought you're crazy, but I've been very, very impressed that uh, the resiliency of our employees, the resiliency of our customers, their innovativeness and, and openness to try new things, to continue meeting their mission requirements in the face of all of the changes we've all gone through with COVID. In terms of the your specific uh, communication systems um, segment, Dana, what have been the, the, the highlights of, of, of that division um, to date since the merger? Um, I think it's really what we can now do for our customers, you know, on a much broader technology scale. You know, 
L3 and Harris respectively had made significant investments in resilient waveforms, the most advanced LPI, LPD capabilities. Now bringing those together, we have an even stronger portfolio that I think has put us forward multiple years of what you know we would have been on on our own independent development tracks. The ability to extend that across you know all of the domains, ranging from from space to airborne to, to land warfare, where we've been you know obviously very specialized as Harris to you know um, now surface vessels and even under the sea. And then, you know, what we can do for the soldier, bringing a very, very strong, you know, business in, in the legacy L3 business, not only for night vision, but aiming devices. You know, we really can provide the full suite of sensors and capabilities the soldier needs. And then the ability to get that information out to higher command levels and then infiltrate information back to the soldiers. So together with the communications capability, the night vision, the laser aiming, the sensing capability, I think we're doing a lot to make the soldier more effective on key programs like um, the ENVGB program uh, for the U.S. Army, the next generation network modernization. And, you know, we're doing the same kinds of things for our global customer base in, in Australia and looking forward to Morpheus and some of the related programs in the U.K. Just looking at the UK, Dan. I mean, you mentioned Morpheus. Um, any particular programs you're, you know, you're interested in pursuing? Yeah. So, so we have a pretty big footprint combined now with L3 Harris in the UK. Um, you know, two thousand plus people uh, includes some very interesting legacy businesses, the TRL business, and you know all the great things they do. I would say in our business, it's really related to everything that's comms modernization. Morpheus, obviously, the, the big program out there. And as the incumbent provider of all of the Bowman radios, 50,000 plus radios that we build in the UK for the Bowman program, we've been working with the modern of course, GD in the UK to sustain those since uh, Bowman has gone into service. But we're really looking forward to the modernization and the improvement of that network as Morpheus and all of the different phases of Morpheus start to come online. So that's a big program. It's a complicated program, as you know, Andrew. But we're looking forward to participating in the multiple different parts of that that relate to the communications network and refreshing and modernizing the, the British Army's capability with the latest you know, network communications technology that we're bringing to the U.S., that we're bringing to Australia and other allies. Any particular elements of the business, Dana, which have surprised you in, in the first year of operation? Um, you know, number of surprises, but they've, they've really all been, been positive, I would say. I, I would positively surprise the, the, the strength of the um, L3 portfolio in ISR and airborne ISR how well that complements uh, the things that we had done on the ground and then some of the nascent things we were making investments in and airborne. So it really strengthens the broader portfolio and in integrating all of the airborne sensors from an ISR perspective with the ground capability that, that we've been offering and the overall strength of, uh, of the night vision and that soldier systems business and now being able to bring that together with our networking technology on the ground and provide so much more capability to the soldier. Dana, has the, has the merger opened up any new market spaces for, for L3 Harris technologies around the world? I think we have a stronger portfolio that, that 
you know, gives us an ability to compete on a different scale. And then complementary presence, you know, more than doubled our presence in the UK, more than doubled our presence in Australia, um, in, in Canada and other key markets where individually we had been very strong. But now, you know, if you look at the additional scale, it gives us more local capability, uh, provides more attractive career options for, for folks in each of those markets. So it's easier to recruit some of the best talent. And then obviously in terms of local industry content participation, you know, where we're doing extensive engineering, you know, in addition to pure sustainment, um, we had done manufacturing in, in the UK before, as I mentioned on Morpheus, but, you know, the combined company and this scale that we now have opens up a lot of additional possibilities in those core markets. And with that in mind, Dana, where do you see the, uh, the future for L3 Harris um, moving forward in the next five to 10 years? Well, I think we know what we want to be. We're a very good, focused, very capable aerospace and defense company that's technology-driven. So we will expand, we will grow uh, you know, in those areas where we can apply our technology to the very demanding problems that our customers have and mission requirements. So I think you'll see us uh, you know, focused on those key markets like the UK, like Australia, of course, the modernization programs in the US and you know, where we can bring those very advanced technical solutions to meet the most difficult problems that our customers have. And just finally, Dana, when do you see the markets uh, returning to normal after the, uh, the, the global pandemic? Oh boy, uh, I wish I could could answer that, Andrew. I, I mean, we're all we're all sort of trying to adjust. To, is this a new normal? Is this going to be a prolonged situation? I think we're we're sort of cautiously approaching it with that eventuality. You know, we've gone through uh, a very modest, you know, sort of return to the workplace. I wouldn't say return to work because people have been working from home, but you know, we had you know at our peak had. About half of our people working at home and working remotely, you know, we're bringing a few of them back now. How long this is going to last, uh, you know, I, I would be hard pressed to give you anything more than a guess. We're, you know, like everybody hoping that it's uh, sooner rather than later, but kind of preparing to, you know, deal with this and support our customers uh, as though this is going to be a long-term situation. Thank you, Dana. Um, and what uh, thoughts would you like to leave our, our listeners with um, regarding the, um, the current state of L3 technologies, L3 Harris technologies, rather? Well, I, I mean, it, it, it's great to have the opportunity to talk with them and talk with you about that. A year in, it, it really has been an exciting year. I think um, we have delivered beyond the promise that, that we saw there when, you know, Bill Brown and Chris Kabasic first got together and imagined what this company could be. I think they're, they're both very bright guys. They saw a lot of promise in terms of two strong independent companies that had great technology and great people and great market positions, but, you know, individually perhaps lacked the scale to go and, and offer the full breadth of solutions that uh, um, some of the other top and primes could offer. Now we've got that, and we've brought that together in, in ways that I think have really exceeded our expectations. The combinations of the business are unlocking tremendous potential that I think is going to benefit our customers throughout the world. We've already seen that in a number of instances, some of which we've talked about here today, but I think we'll see more of that, and we will be a stronger global player It'll offer better solutions to our customers, give them more choices, and we look forward to continuing to support them across the world. Perfect. 
Dana Mena, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, Andrew. Always good to talk with you. I look forward again to hopefully seeing you in person someplace in the world soon. This episode of the Weekly Defence Podcast was brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, Honeywell. As always, a big thanks to everyone who took the time in being a part of the episode. And for our listeners, make sure you like and subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and tell a friend or a colleague about the podcast. Until next week, thanks for listening.